All right. When the Apostle Paul uh, approached the Corinthian church, as we've been learning on Sunday mornings, he was hoping to unravel several important problems that they were struggling with. He was committed to letting no secondary issue get in the way of the progress that needed to be made there in, in Corinth. We're always in danger of seeing the most important things that God desires for us obscured by secondary things. If we do not keep our eyes on the cross, if we are not fixated on the things that matter the most to the Lord, it's very easy to let things that are good and important but not most important uh, eclipse what really matters. And so Paul was intent on making sure that didn't happen as he approached the Corinthians. It's consistent with the focus that he exhibited uh, in the church's inception when he planted that church. Remember he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So the Apostle Paul, even when he was building this church from nothing, was intent to preach the core message of Jesus Christ's crucifixion, His death, his burial, his resurrection, this was central to all that he did. He did not want the church to kind of spin off the path and get focused on some sub-issue. Uh, he wanted the cross to remain central. So as he gets to the end of his first letter to the church, Paul takes the time to once again reestablish the very heart of his message to them. He says in, oh, by the way, I'm terrible at my slides, so apologize if I'm not keeping up. Uh, he says, for I delivered to you as of first importance... What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. There could be no misunderstanding. Some doctrine is more important, is of greater importance than other doctrines. Paul makes it clear what they are supposed to know and what they're supposed to cling to. He says, Christ died for our sins, he was buried, he rose on the third day, and he appeared to many witnesses. Now, all these things occurred not in a vacuum, but in accordance with the scriptures. They were all fulfillments of what God had said would happen in the precise manner that those who knew the word of God should have expected them to happen. So if we went... Or if we want to share the gospel, the good news with someone, we need to tell them these things. We need to tell them that Christ indeed died. To die, of course, he had to first live. And, and of course, he lived an exemplary life, a perfect life. So he did not die as a natural consequence of sin, as you and I will likely die one day. Jesus died because he intended to die. He died because he was intent to give his life as a sacrificial offering that would save sinners. The only way to save sinners was to pay their moral debt for them. And he did that by dying the death of a sinner. So if we share the gospel with somebody, we must tell them about the death of Christ. If we share the gospel with somebody, we have to tell them about his burial. To be buried, he first had to die. And he did die on a cross with full measure of the sins of God's people. His three-day burial removed doubt removed speculation that perhaps Jesus suffered to the point almost of dying, but did not die. That, that might have been the thought of some if he died and then rose immediately. But being buried and staying three days in the tomb erased the doubts that many would have had. Jesus paid the debt of sin 
in full. He did not just suffer, but he died for our sin. That is the wage of sins we're going to see in a few moments. But the third and fourth facts, which Paul tells us are essential details of the gospel in that last chapter of 1 Corinthians, they often don't make it into the preaching of the gospel. Christ died, but he did not stay dead. Jesus was buried, but he did not remain in a tomb. He rose, he rose alive, and he rose triumphant. The gospel is not the gospel without the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We make a serious mistake when we omit the resurrection and the ascension from our gospel presentations. When we do so, we leave Christ, in a sense, dead upon the cross. We leave him buried in a tomb, but we do not proclaim the victory of his resurrection. And this is critical. If Jesus is not raised, our hope is unjustified. And we're going to discuss that in detail in just a few moments. So we're not going to leave out those details tonight. In response to the question 31 that we're going to be look at this evening, we're going to, we're going to take great care to examine the fullness of that core doctrine of Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. So tonight's question that we're going to be dealing with is question 31 in the Baptist Catechism that we've been struggling through. The question is, wherein consisteth Christ's exaltation? And the answer to this question, you can read it with me. Christ's exaltation consisteth in his rising again from the dead on the third day, in ascending up into heaven, in sitting at the right hand of God the Father, and in coming to judge the world at that last day. So the humiliation of Jesus came first, and it was the necessary means by which the exaltation of Christ would be set up. Now, last week, Ross was faithful in speaking of the humiliation of Jesus. Christ took on a human nature, though he was, had existed for all time in perfect harmony with God the Father and God the Spirit. He added to his divine nature a human nature, being born in the flesh, being born under the law and subject to the limitations of the flesh. Jesus did so that he might suffer the regular hardships of a material life in the fallen world. And he was brought low through the crucifixion, of course, the ultimate of humiliations, when he was raised up as an example of punishment for sin. So the, world, the word to exalt is we're going to be talking about the, the other side of the coin tonight. Humiliation of Christ is one side of the coin, and the exaltation of Christ is the other. The word to exalt carries two possible meanings, which are quite similar to one another. One meaning for exaltation is to lift up spatially. In other words, to increase the height of one's position. This is, this is space uh, in, in, in the regards to how a thing might be lifted up or raised. But the second possible and faithful translation for the word to exalt or understanding of the word to exalt is more spiritual in nature. It means to cause enhancement in position, in fame, in honor, in power, or fortune. Now, what we're going to see today as we look at the exaltation of Jesus is that both of these meanings are relevant to the answer that we received for question 31. The exaltation, as we will see tonight, is not a concept that happens all of a sudden in one instant, but rather through a series of events that are ordained by God, the exaltation of Christ will unfold 
in many ways like the bloom of a rose that opens gradually, slowly, with ever-increasing beauty as it progresses. So the first facet of Christ's exaltation picks up right where Ross left off last week. It, it picks up at the tomb. Turn with me to Luke chapter 24. When Jesus was crucified, uh, it was on the eve of a great celebration in the nation of Israel, particularly in Jerusalem. They wanted to be careful that that celebration was not marred, the Passover was not marred by the ugly image, the optics of a Jew strewn out and bleeding to death upon the cross. And so Jesus' body was taken down from the cross along with the two thieves, and they were hastily prepared for burial, um, not to the extent that the followers of Jesus would have liked to see done. The next day after the quick entombment of Christ was the Sabbath, and so no work could be technically completed on that day, especially in light of the holiday coming up. Those who followed Christ and uh, honored Yahweh did not want to render themselves unclean for the celebrations that would happen um, during that week, and so they returned to the tomb at the first light on Monday, just praying that somehow they would be allowed back into the tomb of Christ to pay proper respects for the body of their Savior. These women who came with spices and, um, and, and dressings to hopefully anoint the body and wrap the body of Christ properly in accordance to the tradition of the Jews did not know how they would gain access. They were praying and hoping that God would make a way for them. So we see in Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 8, that Luke, the historian, writes for us. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? <clears throat> Excuse me, among the dead. He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. My clicker's not working here very well tonight. Forgive me for that. So, uh, from the lowest nadir, the lowest valley, to the highest joy, the greatest exaltation, the disciples of Jesus are experiencing a roller coaster of monumental proportions when it comes to their emotions. They have seen their Savior, the beloved one who loves them best. They have seen Him crucified. They have seen Him rendered undignified before themselves, His blood poured out for their sins. But now they are seeing that there is hope that he may still be alive after all. This stone by angelic intervention has been moved away. Matthew 28, 2 tells us of a great earthquake that occurred and an angel which rolls this stone away and reveals the entrance to the tomb so that uh, the resurrection could be witnessed by human eyes. There were no guards to hinder them, for they had become as dead men at the sight of the angel when they saw this Angelic intervention, Matthew 28, 4, tells us that the guards, in a sense, passed out. They couldn't handle it. The women that came to prepare the dead body of Jesus beheld two men in dazzling apparel. 
So they were not just sharp dressers here. These men were radiant in the literal sense of the term. They were glowing. These, these godly messengers delivered unthinkable news in the form of a question. These angels said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day and rise. So the question was appropriate for Jesus himself had given them advanced warning that he would die, that he would be buried, but he had also told them that on the third day he would rise again. Jesus had preemptively preached to them this essential gospel that Paul describes in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. The disciples remember uh, the disciples remember what Jesus had said to them, and then immediately they depart to bear witness of these things. Scripture provides many details that enrich in our understanding of Christ's exaltation. Jesus' resurrection was not the result of some medical swoon. It was not some natural turn of events. His death was nothing short of a supernatural intervention. Jesus was raised by his own power. John 2, 19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. Now, some of you might even know a human being that for an instant or for a few moments was clinically dead. And through the intervention and great efforts of medical staff, perhaps they were brought back to breathing. Their heart began to beat again, and they experienced life. But this is a very different situation than that. By his own power, a Jesus who had been put to death was able to rise again. So though he was dead in a sense by his human nature, the divine nature of Jesus persevered. Being infinite and unkillable, Jesus continued to live. Jesus was raised by his own power, but we also know from the testimony of Scripture that he was raised by the Father's power. Romans 10.9, this important Scripture that helps us to understand the process of salvation says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. So we see here that the resurrection was not only the work of one of the persons of the Trinity, but at least the Father also was involved with the resurrection of the Son. We learn from other parts of Scripture that Jesus was raised explicitly when he said that he would be raised. The timing of this event was absolutely perfect. Acts 10, verses 39 through 40 says, They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. And this coincides with the gospel testimony where Christ tells the people that if you were to destroy this temple, speaking of his own body, that he indeed would raise it up again after three days. So the timing of the resurrection was not haphazard. It was exactly as Christ knew it would be. He was raised in the very body that he was crucified in. So the resurrected Jesus was not the spirit of Jesus incarnating another carnal form. Acts 10, 39 through 40 says, They put him to death by hanging him on the tree. I'm sorry, I already read that verse. Luke 24, 30, 39 says, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. 
And so the very body that dwelt among the disciples, that cared for their needs, that preached the truth to them with such power, the very body that spoke words, which cast demons out of those afflicted, which healed the blind and the lame and the sick, these very hands and feet were the feet of the resurrected Jesus. He came triumphant over death, the same body that went into the tomb came out of the tomb. We also see from the testimony of Scripture that he rose from the grave never to die again. These individuals who you might have heard testimony of who have passed away for a moment, for a short amount of time, and then been revived and brought back to life, that resurrection is at best a temporary resurrection. Those individuals have more time here on earth, but they too will die again. Lazarus who was raised from the tomb after being dead for some time, died again. But it is not so with Christ. For Romans 6, 9 says, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. So there was a triumph in this resurrection that hasn't been experienced by others who may have died for a short amount of time and been revived to life again. Christ was in the grave for three days. He came out of the grave and death from that point forward has zero impact on Christ and no power over his body or his life. So this resurrection is important to Christians. It is critical on a number of fronts. The curse of sin is and always has been death. Genesis 2, 15 through 17, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so it is imperative that Christ, the embodied Christ, had to suffer a true and authentic human death. Because a true, authentic human death was what God required for the breaking of His law. We see the same thing testified of in the New Testament in Romans 6, 23, where we see that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The reason the free gift could be given was because Christ gave His life for us. In suffering and expiring here in His time on earth, Christ died as we should have died. And so His death was an authentic human death. Death is described as our final enemy, 1 Corinthians 15, 26. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death is no friend to us. It is a consequence of our failure and fall. And so if we are not to taste of the wrath of God that we have earned from our sins, then that death must be faithfully experienced by somebody who did not deserve to experience, and that is Christ. And yet in Acts 2, 24... We see that God raised him up. I think I went too far there. Maybe I don't have that in there. 224, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Think about that. Death is such an enemy to us that people fear it. You look in our society today and see the mass pandemonium that is brought about by a virus that has a death rate of less than 1%. And look at how, how gravely people are fearing over this. Look at the Great Depression that it has brought over people as they, they won't even want to leave their house for fear that they might have to roll the, 
this hundred-sided die to see if they will be the next statistic. This death seems to grip us because we can't battle it. We don't have the tools to overcome it. And yet Christ rose victorious over it. This death that is such an enemy to us was no threat to Jesus. Though he tasted of death, death could not hold him down and had no power to keep him in the grave. It was no match for the Son of God. He is triumphant. He is victorious. For Jesus to overcome the consequences of sin, especially having taken upon his own shoulders the weight of every sin that the elect had ever committed or would ever commit, the fact that he was able to overcome a death that was warranted by that much vile wickedness and law-breaking gives us confidence that our Savior has the power to defeat even our greatest enemy. Amen. Think about that, friends. Rejoice in that. And, and praise God for that reality because exactly how much is riding on the exaltation of Jesus? How much does, that, uh, does our hope depend on that exaltation? Everything Amen. rides upon that exaltation. Amen. Absolutely everything. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're not going to spend too tremendously uh, much time on this because we're going to be preaching this in, in extension in the weeks to come. But note that the weight that is placed on the, uh, the doctrine of the resurrection here by the Apostle Paul. He says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So apparently the doctrine of exaltation was being drawn into question because some came to the reality of Christ with a preconceived theology that resurrection did not happen. The Sadducees were great proponents of this theology that we just live our lives here. We hope to praise the Lord and, and glorify our God here as we live. But once you die, it is over. It is done. Nothing left to be said. And this doctrine, this ideology had seeped into some of the minds of the Corinthian believers. And so Paul's challenging it right now. Verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. Think about that, friends. We must be careful to never proclaim something that Christ has not proclaimed to us. We don't want to put words into God's mouth. We don't want to make him out to be a liar. If our ideas of what are true turn out to not really be true, we must preach what Christ has preached to us. That is the true testimony that is worth filling our pulpits. So they're saying we can't preach a risen Christ if it is not true because it would make God to be a liar. And then in verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. And those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Now I don't suspect that false doctrine of the Sadducees has wiggled its way into the hearts of anybody in this room. And I want you to consider the weight of that for just a second. How much every day we think about the hope that we have that even if this was our last day on earth, that we know it's not our last day. Amen. Because Christ has risen, has risen. 
But if Christ had not risen, just think about the jeopardy you would be in right now. If Christ had died but remained in that tomb, what cause would we have for joy? How would we know that our great enemy death had truly been defeated? Death would still have exactly the sting it had before Christ went to the cross, died on the cross, was buried and rose on the third day. Death would still have that sting, that threat looming over us, that dark cloud and shadow of the curse of our sin would still hang over our heads. But because Christ has been exalted from the tomb, we have great joy in our hearts because that cloud has been washed away and the clarity of the light of Christ has broken through it. What a grand thing to think about the exaltation of Christ. It is not exaggeration. This exaltation is, is purely the proclamation of what Christ is. And the exaltation of Christ is not us bestowing honor upon Christ. It is Christ revealing the honor of who he is and how powerful he has always been. So we exalt Christ in responding to the thing that has been revealed to us, but Christ is glorified now and for all time. He has always been exalted. Having risen from the grave, Jesus immediately sets about revealing himself to credible witnesses and instructing those witnesses to share the good news of his risen life. We see this in Matthew chapter 28. Verse 5 says, But the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. And then look at verse 7. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. This is news that the followers of Christ needed to hear. And then just a few verses later, as the women had gone back to the 12 and had, or the 11 and had told them about what they had seen, verse 9, and behold, Jesus met them. Jesus revealed himself to them and he said, greetings. And they came and took hold of his feet and they worshiped him. And then Jesus said to them, see how important it is to Christ. Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. So this resurrection was not a reality to keep quiet. It needed to be proclaimed to the world. It needed to be echoed by credible sources. The integrity of the Hebrew legal system insists, and you can go back and look at this in Deuteronomy 19.15. You can see it echoed again in Matthew 18.16. So this is not some Old Testament concept that doesn't apply anymore. The scripture says that if something is going to have legal weight to it, then the eyes of multiple witnesses must bear testimony to it. This is a standard of justice that is repeated in the New Testament. So it is still an expectation for the saints to live up to today. Claims, especially outrageous claims, such as the fact that the disciples were about to share to the world that Jesus was not dead, but after three days had risen again, these kinds of claims needed proof. They needed corroboration. And so it's very important that Christ's exaltation was seen. And seen it was. Acts 1.3. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Since the resurrection was so essential to the gospel, Paul had included a historical record when he was giving an account to the, of the first things to the Corinthians, the things of greatest importance, 
So look again at that passage from 1 Corinthians 15, 5 through 8, where it said, He appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. This is critical, important historical information. Because as Paul is testifying to his brothers and sisters in Corinth about the importance of this resurrection, he's reminding them that it is legally verified by a number of eyewitness accounts. Note there that he said that some of those 500 brethren who had seen Jesus alive in the flesh after his resurrection, many of them were still alive. In other words, if you want to, you can go out and find these people and get this from their own mouths. You don't just have to listen to me, says Paul. Some of the brothers had passed away, but many who had seen the risen Christ could still testify and bear witness to the fact that Jesus indeed was living and breathing and teaching the truth in the 40 days after his resurrection. Even the secular world was given witness to this amazing reality, though they oppressed it. Matthew 28, verses 11 through 15. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. These guards were the guards who swooned at the sight of the angels. So they gave a record of what they recalled. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel... These chief priests gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. And they said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. What's that called? It's called a cover-up. And it happens today in government. <laughs> we should not be surprised to see something like that happening in the early part of the first century. So they took the money and they did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews today. Apparently the money didn't do the trick. Because the story still got out and was circulated among the brothers. Bearing testimony to the, the scandalous cover-up that sought to silence the message of the saints. But here even recorded in scripture is the testimony of these two soldiers that failed to keep their charge and had to be paid to cover this up so that the truth of the resurrection might be put into question. There is no gospel without the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But the resurrection was not the completion of Christ's exaltation. Remember what we talked about earlier in the sermon today, that there are two similar yet distinct meanings for the word exaltation. One version of this word is to lift up spatially. In other words, to be exalted. And we've seen that happen, right? Jesus rose from the grave. So there was a physical exaltation of his once still and lifeless body. The second meaning of the verb to exalt is to enhance in position, in fame, in honor, in power, in fortune. And we have seen that as well. As a risen Savior, Jesus was exalted as the victor as one who is triumphant over sin and death, our greatest enemies. And yet there was more exaltation in store on both fronts, in both senses of the word for exaltation. Having revealed himself to many over the course of 40 days, the physically exalted, raised from the grave Jesus was ready to ascend once again. We see this in Acts chapter 1. Did I skip forward too much? Yes, verse 9. 
And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, he was exalted. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Note the prodding of the angel here. I like the humor that God has in verse 11. Why do you stand looking into heaven? Remember Luke 24, 5? The angels asked a very similar question after the first exaltation. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. So these disciples were apparently always looking in the wrong places. This physical, spatial exaltation is accompanied by a complementary exaltation of honor and station, the second type of definition of what it means to exalt someone. So we see that in a series of verses, Mark 16, 19. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Again, Hebrews 8, 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. We spoke just recently about how Christ fulfills the office of prophet, priest, and king. And this priest who is our advocate, who stands in our place and pleads for us, is seated in a very strategic place. Where is he seated? At the right hand of the Father. Psalm 110.1 testifies of this positional exaltation as well. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So what is significant about this right hand of the Father? Now, the right hand is the position of greatest honor in the courts of a king. And so as God rules over all things, Jesus rules as his co-equal at the right hand of the Father. Remember that the James and John, the sons of Zebedee, had made the bold request that when Christ came to establish an earthly kingdom, that the two of them might be seated on his right hand and on his left hand when he took his physical throne. Jesus had uh, buffeted their requests because no one else deserves to be at the right hand of the true king than Jesus Christ himself. Having been exalted, Jesus left his people with instructions. He wanted them to continue his exaltation by way of gospel preaching. Acts 1.8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so Jesus, just moments before he is spatially and positionally exalted in the, in the uh, ascension into heaven, gives instruction to his people that they should continue this process of exaltation. That the gospel that Paul says is of primary importance should continue to ever be the message that is on the lips of his people. So we, his church, now are to testify of this gospel, this death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, that this should be the joy of our hearts to proclaim this to the world around us, not just to our immediate communities, but to the ever-expanding community influence as the gospel goes out into the world to every tribe, tongue, and nation. May our worship be greatly impacted by this doctrine of the exaltation of Jesus Christ. That the fact that we do not worship 
a dead and buried Savior, but a risen and exalted Savior. Colossians 3.1 says, if, you, if then you have been raised with Christ, speaking of how we, uh, through baptism of the Spirit, have been put to death, our old life has been laid to rest, but we are now alive in Christ, a sense of, of exaltation has happened in our life as well, for we are crucified with Him. It is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us, right? Colossians 3.1 said, If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. This is not just a doctrine to learn once and then file away in the memory banks to be referenced every once in a while when it becomes relevant. This is the joy of our lives, friends. The fact that we have a Christ who loved us so that he would come and humble himself and take on flesh like ours, that he would dwell among us under the, the limitations of material existence, under the boundaries of the law of God, that he would fulfill that law so perfectly without ever falling short of it that he would endure the suffering that sinners should endure, that he would experience the hardships of Calvary, that his blood would drop to the ground because blood is what God requires for sin, that he would experience that and be buried and experience the darkness of entombment for three days, but that also this Christ that we love so dearly had the power to overcome death and sin and raise victorious on our behalf and then has been further exalted into the heights of heaven to be seated at the right hand of our powerful God and Father, the creator and sustainer of all things. This should be the song of our hearts. In Acts 17, upon sharing with the lofty minds gathered at what is called the Areopagus, which is this forum where philosophers of great renown would gather and discuss philosophy and ideas of the day, Paul seeks counsel with these great minds in, in, uh, in Rome. And he came not to discuss the finer points of philosophy, but to help these men consider that perhaps they were missing the finest point of philosophy, the finest example of what man's mind can rest upon. And he began to preach Jesus as the unknown God, the God that they yet had come to see and understand and so then in Acts 17, verses 30 through 31, as he's wrapping up this discourse, he says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Amen. So friends, we look to Christ who is seated at the right hand of God the Father, but at some point, He will come again. He will leave that right hand position temporarily to take on the, the mantle of judge, to come upon the back of a white horse and declare that sin once and for all will be put down and that all those who remain rebels and who are unsheltered by the sanctuary of the grace of Jesus Christ will be indeed judged by fire. Every promise that Jesus makes Jesus keeps and we have a promise that has yet to be fulfilled be most surely 
but most surely will be fulfilled. We have a promise that the one who has shown us such love and generosity in leaving his lofty station to dwell with us, the one who perfectly kept that covenantal law, the one who suffered for sins that he never committed, the same Jesus who rose from the grave and rose from earth triumphant will return to the earth to rise us up from where we are. The dead will rise. The living will be liberated from this world. And the present creation that is infected with sin will be cleansed by fire and will be replaced with a new heavens and a new earth, a dwelling place that is fit for a king and for his citizens. We can rejoice in the return of that exalted king. And until we experience it ourselves, we can continue to exalt the Savior in our preaching and in our testimony, for only he is worthy of praise. Let's have a word of prayer, and then if you have any questions or discussion that you'd like to continue on, we have time tonight so we can speak more of these things. Father, we thank you for the power that you have displayed over death and over sin. Father, those who do not know who you are, who have not come to be reborn, not tasted of your spirit, have every reason to tremble at the thought of death. What else can they do knowing in their heart of hearts that there is a God and that that God is holy and that that God is just and righteous and that he will not allow sin and rebellion to endure forever? How can the unbeliever do anything but tremble at the prospect of the end of this life, which will surely bring them to one place and to one place alone, to the white seat of judgment, where you will declare what is true, where you will erase every misconceived notion that the works and the deeds of man can somehow gain us a spot in heaven, where you will declare to all who have not Christ the details of their sin, and that the judgment that will be rendered to them will be just and will be completed as you send them to eternal punishment. How can those who have not Christ do anything but tremble at the thought of death? But Father, for those of us whose eyes have been lightened by the gospel of Jesus Christ, who have heard the sweetness of this good news preached and have believed, death is not the same thing to us that it used to be. You, the better Adam, have risen from the tomb. You have displayed to us that we have nothing to fear if we are in you, Lord God. May you be the ark that spares us from the fiery judgment of hell. Lord God, may your saints understand that death holds no dominion over us because you have defeated it already. And so you can faithfully declare on the cross that it is finished because the great battle has been won. We didn't need to lift a single finger for you did it all on our behalf. So thank you, God. We are humbled to stand and sit before you today as redeemed citizens of the kingdom of heaven that we used to battle against. We know that we deserve no place here We know and confess, Lord God, that our sin is great, but your grace is greater. So we rejoice in the identity and the belonging that we have in you, thanks to the exaltation of Christ. 
And may we put to death any sense of pride or arrogance that might creep up in us that desires to see our own names exalted, Lord God. Let us be a humble people who are grateful for all the glory and the praise to fall upon the shoulders of Christ. For he bore our sins upon his shoulders on the cross and put them to rest and now has risen pure and holy, good and true. And the blood that he shed has washed us clean as well. And so let us rejoice in the righteousness that is ours by promise. We love you, Lord God, for all that you have done for us. We look forward to your return. The exaltation is not finished. And indeed, we who belong to you will praise your name so that your exaltation may resound to the end of eternity. And we pray this all in Jesus' perfect name. Amen. Right. Do we have any questions or comments on what was shared tonight from God's Word? You know, in Easter time, Ross, those of us who are oldies in the faith or have spent some time around oldies in the faith, you'll hear people come up to you and be like, He is risen! And there's an expectation of a response. And that response is supposed to be, He is risen indeed. Now, why on earth would we only say that around Easter when that is the joy of our lives every day of the year? So one of the ways we can probably encourage each other enough is just walk up to each other and just look at each other and say, He is risen. And then let our brother respond to us, he is risen indeed. You know, what a great and lofty reality that he is triumphant, that he is victorious in the way that he has been. You know, we, we should marvel at that regularly. It is no small thing, no small thing, that Christ rose from the, from the grave. And shame on us for truncating the gospel so often. You know, in the way that we share the message of, of hope, we often are so quick to say, Christ died for your sins. But we need to remember to, to, to let these people know that he didn't just die for your sins, but that the grave is powerless over us now because the tomb is empty, because Christ is exalted, he is risen, and there is resurrection for all those who call upon his name.
John. Yeah, you know, I think too, the familiarity of being a believer sometimes, I always think of the church in, uh, what was it, Ephesus, you know, longer we've been Christians, you know, mm -hmm. he said, nevertheless, I have this, you know, you commended them, and then he says, nevertheless, I have this against you, you've left your first love. Yeah. Repent from where you have fallen and do the work, first works, right? Well, you know, they've fallen in love with the Lord, you know, and all of a sudden, honeymoon is over, and they start going after all these worldly things, right? Mm -hmm. And um, I always think of that, you know, the longer you've been a believer, I used to wonder what that was like when I was a new believer, and I hear all these old believers, like, oh, well. You'll find out, Lord willing, right? And I think, too, like this whole thing with my wife has kind of renewed me to that where you just go through the motions sometimes. <laughs> but I think, too, we should be very grateful for those of us who, like, know that we need to be in the Word regularly, right? We need to be, like, husbands were to wash our wives in the water of the Word. And if we're constantly meditating on the Word, then when those times happen, we'll be quicker to bow the knee in adoration to God like Job did rather than to question God, like how dare you, right? Yeah. Or battle that, that, you know? And so I think the Lord expects us to do these things so that when, like all these verses are going over, like the one Russ quoted, like the one that comes after that when it says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then yeah. you will appear with the Lord. That's a verse we did in a small group this last week. Mm. And it's like Christ didn't come to be, a, I sent a small group of, uh, a meme from Paul Washer where it says Christ didn't come to be an addition to our life. Yeah. Like a self-help Joel Osteen heresy. Yeah. He's not just your mascot. Yeah. You know, he's but your he life. to be our actual life. Yeah. So we should reflect on when he's not our life, repent from where we have fallen and do the first words, right? So glad you mentioned your wife in that because you kind of read my mind at the time as you were talking through those things. I was kind of reflecting on the fact that the institution of family gives us so many opportunities to learn these realities and to rejoice in them regularly. And I, I have to confess that there are times when I forget how blessed I am to have the wife that loves the Lord that I do. In my anniversary, I've just been kind of contemplating this a lot and praising God for it in my times of prayer but when I fail to appreciate my wife like I should, the Spirit convicts me, and I realize, wow, I'm, I'm, I should be more grateful for what God has given. And then that, in turn, makes me think about my Savior. And am I appreciating my Savior as well the way that I should? And so these, these ways that God orders our lives, where we have these marital relationships and these relationships with our children, they always have this great potential to teach us more about our Savior, too, and about the way that He loves us and the way that we are called to love Him. So, uh, so I think our interactions with our, our wives or our, our husbands, if you're a woman, they are ways for us to really remember that we need to appreciate our God and not take for granted the wonderful love that He has. Even though it is granted, it is guaranteed, it is, <laughs> we are sealed in the Spirit, but we should not treat it as a thing that is cheap and easy or yes. that we can just put on the shelf. It, it should be the contentment of our life to know that he did this for us and that we are who we are because of his work. And we should be thankful for when he rebukes us when we're fallen, like when our spouse, when we have these issues, you know, we all argue and stuff like that. Yeah. And, um, you know, those, those short times of falling into sin become more short when scripture's hidden in our heart and we might not sin against God. It's like 
start boxing with their wives and not being thankful for them, then all of a sudden these little verses come into your mind, you know, mm -hmm. dwell with your wife in peace and your prayers will be hindered. You're like, man, Lord, I can't do it today. <laughs> but, you know, those are good times. So and he's like, what's that? Your prayers are a little hindered right now. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I want to comment, too, on the, um, the worship part, too. Um, you made a comment about the Sabbath, you said something about them not being about work. It was when they were preparing the uh, the spices and the things for anointing Christ's body. So it was that day where after he had died on Friday, on Saturday, they had uh, they they wouldn't go to the tomb and try to anoint his body properly because it was a day to be free from work. Mm -hmm. yeah. They were probably chomping at the bit. I bet they wanted to go, but they knew that to honor him, they needed to listen to the Sabbath law. Go ahead. I don't know if it's a little bit ahead of it, maybe, or the long topic, but it's occurred to me in the last few weeks about Christ is seated at the right hand of God. For so many years, I think I've always looked forward to when Christ comes again and reigns on the earth. He's reigning now. I've just Amen. come to that realization. Yes. That Amu. <laughs> <laughs> It is a beautiful subtlety. You know, I, 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 I right, right. And we're, we live in a world of extremes. Like everything goes over the top to try to display its glory and its grandeur. And we serve a God who just is what he is. And if you don't catch it, you miss out on it, but it's still there, right? He doesn't have to go over the top to show what he is. And so he reigns currently on the throne. He is confidently in charge and reigning over everything that you see right now. Nothing is outside of his grip. Mm -hmm. So there is no need to triumph on his behalf or to unleash him or to, to do what needs to be done so that he might just come. He's not waiting on us at all. He is reigning now. And that's a wonderful reality that we can, we can all rejoice in and take comfort in. Care about the double whammy, raised Roman Catholic and then dispensational. Yeah. Yep, I, I went through the dispensational gauntlet myself. So slowly but surely the Lord is retuning my mind to think properly about things like that. Yeah. Paul? Yeah, uh, so kind of thinking of these, like these sister doctrines, the humiliation of Christ and the exaltation of Christ. If he was, since you say that there was a humiliation of Christ first, that means he was in some way exalted in, in before that for him to be humiliated. And now he's now we speak of his exaltation in light of the humiliation. Would you say that the exaltation of Christ that you taught on tonight is the same, is it greater than the exaltation that he had before his humiliation? Yeah, I think part of the benefit of his exaltation is for us. So in that regard, it is easier for us to understand the lofty grandeur of his glory. But I don't think that you can add anything to the glory of God, that he has always been as magnificent as he is today. That's part of his immutability, right. I think. So I, I, I believe that really more what he's doing is he's revealing and he's telling the story in such a way that becomes more obvious to what he has made, that he is the God that he has always been. So from our perspective, it seems greater, but I, I don't know that you could really even add to what God is. Um, of course, everything that he does is 
is good and just further proves the goodness of who he is. But I, I don't think that properly you can say that Christ has increased his glory um, through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus as much as he has put it on more clear display to us to see and rejoice in. One, one thing that's being assumed here, Paul, is like the hypostatic union, just thinking about the fact that Christ, like the Lord never changes, but he, he added to himself a human nature. So it, that is a question it, of nature, you know what I mean? He, like, did he add it or did he just simply enact it? That it was always the, the innate ability to do that as part of his yeah. being and his nature was always there and it's just a Brain cramp anyway, it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's a little bit of philosophy, maybe. I wonder, though, if in human eyes, Christ is more exalted because, like, David didn't know about all this. Oh, I would for surely confess that he is greater exalted through our eyes because they couldn't rejoice the way that we could rejoice to the extent. And I think he'll be greater exalted in our eyes when we get to see him face to face, too. Uh, wow. I mean, so much more so than we can see him now, although. It's not to downplay at all what we can do now and what we've been given by our Lord, but the progressive revelation of Jesus Christ should supply us an endless fountain from which we will become ever more filled with joy knowing who he is. It's hard for us to understand that, right? These infinite realities. You said something about um, just how people... Um, with the whole COVID thing. And you know, Paul can probably attest to this the most, but it seems like our society's been moving away from having funerals more, right? Mm-hmm. So it just seems to me there must be a connection between people fearing death when our culture is not even familiar with it. You know, like when I was a kid, we would always go to funerals, you know, we'd always go, like, if my aunt or uncle died or a friend of the family, but now it just, people just seem to either pre-made or they just gather and have some little pagan celebration where they release yeah. the birds. Or That's part of the reason why Nelda wants to have another memorial for her son because the one that they had out in uh, Alabama where he lived was, was just a barbecue. It was just people getting together and 
barely even talking about his passing, but more just spending time together because they all had some sort of connection to Jimmy. And, you know, I, it's a sad thing, but, you know, Alabama. honestly, most funerals today, you're not going to hear the gospel. And that's, you know, that's one of our unnegotiables here. If we're going to run a funeral for people here, it's going to have the gospel in it because where else are people going to be confronted with the reality that all of us will eventually be confronted with? And I pray that people don't go their whole life without thinking about that until it's too late to really process it. So I think funerals can be some of those moments of clarity that would really help us to be humbled and understand the limitations of our time here on earth. Because we are so fickle. We take for granted what the Lord God has given to us, and it ought not be that way. Yeah, Ecclesiastes talks all about that. Amen. Yeah, that's right. Well, thank you all for joining us tonight. It's been a blessing to think about the resurrection of Christ.